right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a low right now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Adam Drovetta on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. With Adam Drovetta, I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to be joined by Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World coming up in 35 minutes from right now. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports, joins us at 440 here. KU takes down Oklahoma State last night, 14-point win. It was kind of back and forth, really slow start both ways early in the game. KU kind of pulled up ahead by double digits at halftime and then came out well in the second half, and then they ballooned that thing out, 25-point lead at one point. I think it might have been 26, and then they end up winning by 14. I think it's just nice, and and Bill Self talked about in this postgame. We'll share it later in the show. Uh, sometimes it's just nice to be able to not have to sweat it out at the end. And and he told the story about in 2008 when he met with like Billy Tubbs, who happened to be on hand for a game and was just watching. And, uh, you know, he kind of mentioned to him, he was like, um, your team's going to be good enough to win a title and um, yada, yada, yada you winning these games by a lot of points, this is good. You have the right amount of close games. You don't want to play too many close games. You want to play some because you want the experience and knowing how to handle those situations, but you don't want to play too many. You need the mental break every now and then, and and that's what a game like last night kind of was. It was a mental break at the end of the game at least. It's kind of weird the last time they got that mental break in a game was against the top 10 Baylor team. Yeah, right. You wouldn't have expected that. Which wasn't that. really that long ago. It was yeah, about a week and a half. It's, well, it's just odd that you're like, okay, it makes sense. I mean, West Virginia, is, even though we, we were talking before the show, going to Morgantown can sometimes be tricky. But it makes sense that West Virginia was a game in which they kind of were able to, to relax down the stretch. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, you know, Baylor, really, that's the team. I mean, Oklahoma State, Probably, I mean, you know, they're well. They're definitely well. But would they go to the tournament if even if if they? I don't know that they would even if they were eligible. Um, so you, you're you know the blowouts are coming maybe against teams you'd expect except for that one. Um, but hey, we'll take it. But mm-hmm. yeah, that was as a fan, you really want it too, right? Yeah, like you said, it's it's sometimes nice not to have to sweat out every single game in a conference where that's very much been the case. Now, um. We were talking before the show, and this is obviously a very different situation of how it all happened. Like the Texas game, blowing that lead late, and the Dayton game where you were up 15 at halftime and not able to hold on to that lead. Texas and, Tech. Yeah, Texas Tech, where it almost caused you to lose and go to overtime. Like those are situations of you not able to hold a lead and it costing you. This was clearly not that. And I think there are a lot more reasons to explain why it would happen in a game like this because. You're up by 25, 26 points, which does allow you to maybe ease the brakes a little bit in your mind or, or subconsciously, at least, even if you're not trying to or thinking it. It's it's just hard as a human not to. And then also that the last two minutes of the game, you're playing guys who are either have never played with each other or walk-ons next to each other. 
Um, but again, more end of game troubles for KU. I think 16 of the last 17 shots were missed. They didn't score in the last five plus minutes. They missed the last four free throws. Woof. I didn't see that exact number, mm-hmm. but that makes sense. Having watched the game, I, I wasn't keeping mental note of, of each miss, but there were clanks at the end. I'll say this. The previous games, like the fact that we can draw Texas, Oklahoma, um, uh, Oklahoma twice really, Texas Tech, uh, Dayton, the fact that we can uh, draw other games, Stephen F. Austin, we can pull other games like this, makes you makes you pay more attention to the end of last night's game. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, if, if they hadn't had multiple games before where their struggles down the stretch had cost them games or forced them to play overtime, we would have looked at last night and gone, okay, whatever, they were playing backups. They're, you know, when the starters were still in, they weren't in, in it mentally. They are up 25, whatever. Um, but because those other games happened – now we go, ooh, is that, an, is that more evidence? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think if there was no evidence before, then last night is not any evidence to worry. But because there is evidence before, last night still counts. Yes, exactly. And, and I, I do wonder if, and I don't know, we'll, we'll see what happens, but if there is another situation like the Texas game and we're chronicling back and, and we're sitting there and going, here are all the different times, all the different examples of where KU has not been able to hold on to a lead and and finish things strongly. And, you know, the Oklahoma game, another one. Um, I don't know if that one will get brought up or not, but it is interesting. Again, they missed 16 of their last 17 shots in that game. And that, that's funny, too. That KU, happens, that's two times that's exactly. happened against Oklahoma State. KU had a game where they missed 19 straight shots and didn't score for over nine minutes. And then they had another game, this last game, where they didn't score for like six minutes and missed 16 of the last 17 shots. And if I were to say that both of those happened against Oklahoma State, you would clearly say, well, the Cowboys probably won one of them. Yeah, at the you're at least, least one in one. Game. No, you won them both by double digits. <laughs> you won both going away. And it just took a late kind of spree in both games one was from turnovers the first time the other this time just from all those missed shots to get him back into it and it was funny too because uh Dwan Harris in the post game mentioned that coach self wasn't happy with the way they closed out the game and I remember at one point as we're watching on TV um Joe Yester was at the free throw line at the end and, and he misses both free throws and after he misses the first one which was their third straight miss because Zach Clements had just missed a couple they pan over to, to Bill Self on the video. I, I they didn't totally make out what he said at first, but you just said you just heard him yelling. Still, they're up like seventy six to you know fifty nine or something, and like come on, Joe! Like just the importance of I you can tell it does matter to him how they're finishing. So from that standpoint, yeah. I would chalk it up as to it matters a little bit, but clearly it's it's not remotely in the same category as those other games. I agree. I I could also add with with Clements and with Joe, and I know that what you're mentioning happened during. Yes, if who's free throws, but um, I think there's something to be said. I, I think Bill's intensity for that c- can also be attributed to he knows that not maybe not this year, but there's going to be moments in those guys' careers at KU where they need to get it figured out. Mm-hmm. So he needs to, if he, if he's if he's tough on them now, then they'll be hardened enough to play well. You know when they become starters, that might be his thing. But it's also it could also just be he was caught up in the moment. Like, come on! Like, I don't think at any moment he ever thought can't. Well, at any moment, say in the last four or five minutes, I I don't know that 
maybe even the last 10 minutes. He, he there's you know I, I highly doubt in the last eight or 10 minutes he thought Kansas was ever going to lose that game. But there is a lot of just like groans. Like, are you kidding me? This, come on. It's yeah. just, if for no other reason than it's not fun watching ugly basketball. Well, it, it didn't end up uh, like, it didn't end up mattering, obviously, in that KU still won. And they also still won by double figures. But even if that would have been a situation where that end of game made it turn to an eight point game where all of a sudden you did have to put the starters back in and go, well, now they have to finish off the game, that, that would have been. A little bit frustrating in that situation there. But overall, you know, really impressive performance. And um, on one hand, I sit there and go, man, there have been a lot of times this year where despite as great as this offense is, they go on these long lulls and these long droughts. And boy, is that going to be frustrating when it inevitably happens in an NCAA tournament game. But I think they've also shown sometimes it just doesn't matter because they can be so good in the other whatever 35, 30 minutes of the game. Yeah that they can just cover that up. And, and I think that was the case again against Oklahoma State. It, it's funny because I went away from that thinking, yeah, pretty good offensive performance. But because of that end, they end up just shooting 39% from the field. They were just 7 of 28 from three, just 19 of 27 at the free throw line. I think the thing that I take away the most in terms of just the, the team stats, I guess, in that game, KU had just nine turnovers against a team that forces a lot of them. And yeah, that yeah, yeah. is kind of how Oklahoma State thrives defensively. That's a really impressive performance for KU. And again, and think, uh, another hint of that, you know, Joe Yesvu played, uh, I thought it was 22 minutes. Yeah, 22 minutes. Another hint that when KU plays a lot of two guard, lowers their turnover numbers. Yeah, and um, the other thing we talked about yesterday was offensive rebounding on the mm -hmm. part of Oklahoma State. I think they had 11 offensive rebounds against a heap of misses. They had 16. Oh, okay. I was, or, I'm sorry, are you saying KU or Oklahoma State? Oklahoma State. Yeah, Oklahoma State had just 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, compared to 30 defensive rebounds for KU, which means KU held them to about a 25-26% rebound rate, which is yeah. pretty good Pretty good stuff. Yeah, I mean, everything that KU won, and I think we learned, I mean, I don't know if it's something about Orange or if it's just that Oklahoma State, if Dave is just a matchup problem for Oklahoma State, but um, he didn't score as much as he did in Stillwater, but he still came away with a double-double. And yeah, He must know, love playing the Cowboys. I don't know it what was, it is. It was impressive. What is he, that means he averaged on the season. If he if he was just what, playing Oklahoma State every game, yeah, 14.5 points and, what, 13.5 rebounds per game? I mean, that's an All-American if, if he does that over the yeah. course of the season. He's, he's really good both games against the Cowboys. Yeah. I just – I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is some style thing that Oklahoma State has, and maybe we should take away that he plays well against that type of big. I just more chalk it up as, like, it's just it, – it's an inconsistent thing with Dave. It's it's like throwing darts with your eyes closed at the dartboard. One game could be great. The next game could be bad. You just don't really know. I will say this, though. Honestly, it, it has been a nice little stretch of play for David McCormick. I was going to say, if nothing else Kentucky lately, game. his floor has seemed higher lately. Yes. like well, he, he seems to be reaching his ceiling inconsistently like he, he was before, but his floor seems higher in the last few games, which yeah. is good. And I would agree with that. I mean, uh, to your point, the floor that we had seen Kentucky game and prior was two points and two rebounds or something, a game you play 12, 15 minutes and you don't impact anything. That was the previous floor. Uh, so far since the Kentucky game, the floor has probably been either the, I mean, he was, he, you couldn't really play him down the stretch against Oklahoma, but I, I think that was maybe less to do with Dave ill performing and more to do with just a, a bad matchup. But even then, if you want to say that's the floor, or if you want to say the Baylor game was the floor because he only went one of six, 
Even in the Baylor game, he had nine points, eight rebounds. Even in the Oklahoma game, he had 11 points, four rebounds. He was 5-8 from the field and, and did well early in the game for your offense. So if those are the floor, to your point, I think you absolutely take that unequivocally yeah. for KU. And that is important that it is now a string of, I'm trying to think what that would be, four or five games in a row where that hasn't been a talking point of where did Dave go. Yeah, yeah, he hasn't fl just flat disappeared. Mm -hmm. Um, you'd like to see, you know, if, if, if look, if, if you could get him to go 18 and 9, 18 and 10, great. But I think now we're at a point where with Jalen Wilson coming on the way he has, um, you're kind of sitting there going, well, you know, maybe we don't need that many points. If you can just grab 10 and 8, I'll take that. 12, 12 and 8, I'll take that too. I think the, the biggest takeaway for me of that game, though, is just and it's not even really a takeaway because I didn't really expect the little slump that I guess Ochai was on the last two, three games, just scoring and shooting um, was going to continue. But Ochai got his game back a little bit in that one. What, 20 points on 12 shots? Yep. And, and I, I know Jesse Newell pointed this out, said this is probably good to, to bring up in his gamer in the Kansas City Star that, um, interestingly enough, as, as much has been talked about, and, and with Ochai, maybe the individual numbers or the shooting percentage has been down, but the way that defenses have had to stress to guarding him or face guarding him, maybe that has worked in terms of slowing his numbers down, though it didn't totally against Oklahoma State. Um, it hasn't really worked for an overall game plan against KU. Three of KU's top seven games in Big 12 play by points per possession, have been the last three games. I think the other side of that is, I don't know this, and maybe I'll maybe points per, per possession allowed will will prove me way wrong here. But I also think there's something to be said if you're if you're spending 36 minutes face guarding Ochai Baji, you're going to be pretty worthless on the offensive end because that's a lot of energy. Yeah, that's all your energy right there. So you're also taking away. Um, you know, you're also taking away whoever you say you are, you know, Ochai is your guy tonight. Mm -hmm. Unless you have two really great defenders that can share time, if you're saying Ochai is your guy tonight, then you're also probably saying that guy's also, the guy defending Ochai is not going to have a particularly good offensive night because he's going to be exhausted. And chances are whoever's guarding Ochai is probably one of their better players, which that's pretty important if you're taking him out offensively. So it actually, it, it does work in KU's benefit when teams are basically selling out to guard Ochai and opening things up for other players. You which just is a good need thing. those players to perform, to step, up. to step up. Yeah, and like against Oklahoma, Christian Brown, Jalen Wilson, they did. In the Oklahoma State game, what was, what was crazy about that, and, and this shows, I think, just how good Ochai is um, and why he is a National Player of the Year candidate, even despite him being the key focus, even despite... I think Self said in the post game they went triangle and two a couple times, uh, you know, putting attention on Ochag Baji. Like he still went out and got his. He's so like that's the thing. You put all this attention into stopping the guy and you still can't. Yeah, it's demoralizing. That's gotta be, yeah, exactly. That's got to be so demoralizing, and that's what turns into a game where KU from pretty much after the first, I don't know, ten minutes of the game. Yeah, I think it was like nine forty seven Oklahoma State made the shot to go up eleven to ten. Yeah. And then what from then on game. it was Kansas. Yeah. And basically from that point on through Ochai was getting his while still being the focal point of the defense, opening things up for others. That's kind of perfect for Kansas. And and it just worked out that way. And if Ochai continues playing like that even when he is being the focal point 
I mean, good luck stopping this offense. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think you're also, you saw last night, Jalen Wilson, who just won Big 12 Player of the Week, went 11-7. and seven. And look, Oklahoma State is not the cream of the crop in this conference. And like we said, even if they were eligible for the tournament, they would be, I think, at this moment on the yeah, outside of the bubble. Yeah, they didn't do enough in the non-conference. Yeah, and so they're, you know, even if they were eligible for the tournament, they're probably not a tournament team this year. So this isn't the cream of the crop of the conference. But when you have a player, multiple players now, I think they have Kansas has three players now who have won Big 12 Player of the Week. Didn't Christian grab it once or maybe Dave? Probably back in December. So you've got a guy who just won Player of the Week in the Big 12 go 11-7, and seven, and it's no problem because you've got two other dudes who stepped up. Who and, and that guy who just won Big 12 Player of the Week has kind of been your third option for a lot of this year, and it took him time to turn on. So, I mean, it, you know, a lot of and, – and, and Jalen Wilson's production, I don't think it's a coincidence – that Jalen Wilson's jump in production has come during times when teams have said, we're going to focus on Ochai. Yeah, because if you're, that's the other thing. If you're face guarding him, okay, now it's basically four on four. We're going to have more driving lanes. And, and, and that's proof. What we just said, if you're going to have, if you're going to, you know, have a guy face guarded like Ochai has been, it helps your offense if other guys step up. And what the last two to three weeks have proven out is other guys will step up. Did you take away anything from the defensive side of the ball in that game? Because I thought overall the defense was pretty strong for KU. It still didn't force a ton of turnovers, but I just thought overall it was pretty sound in that game. I don't, but I I don't know how much to take away because Oklahoma State's really bad on offense. That's the thing. I, I don't remember my my biggest thing is I'm I I really look for like there were a few shots even though Oklahoma played Kansas close Saturday. They Kansas still got away, and look, maybe it was one of those things where they were like, their, their scouting report said this guy's not a particularly good three-point shooter. We'll sacrifice letting him take some open threes. But KU left some dudes open, that, that and that didn't, they just didn't fall on against Oklahoma. And again, maybe that was a scouting report. Maybe it was this guy's terrible from three, but he'll chuck it if he's open. So let's, let's you know, make him beat us, even though he's a bad shooter. Um, but I, so I, but I tend to look for, you know, even if the other team doesn't score a bunch, did they have a lot of open shots? I didn't see that. What I saw defensively last night from KU was um, a, a major athletic advantage on the side of Kansas. and Which is funny because Bill Self said going into the game, Oklahoma State is the most athletic team in the conference by far. Well, I don't know, maybe. I mean, look, Bill Self knows more about basketball than I do. Um, I just didn't see what I saw last night. I think what we saw last night is more functional athleticism and that KU was able to get to their athleticism in transition. That could be. And that is what this team is so good at, getting to their athleticism and, and functioning in transition that when they get there, they are deadly. Craig Hershiser during the Lawrence-Mill Valley game pointed, because Mill Valley started that game, Lawrence was in the press, and look, it's high school basketball, I know, but Mill Valley was, or Lawrence was in the press, Mill Valley torched the press, three straight possessions, was getting alley-oops, and then as soon as Lawrence came out of the press and played a half-court offense, um, they ran away with it, and they wound up winning that game by like 20-something. And Craig Hershiser said, what you're seeing is two athletic teams, one of which is good at basketball, one of which is, <laughs> is athletically toward basketball, like is basketball athletic, and the other that is just athletic. And there's something to be said about that. you know. And so what I, but to your point about the defense, I didn't see anything that made me go, oh my gosh, wow. Mm -hmm. I just saw a team do what I think they were supposed to do defensively. I think in every in every facet, if you look at Ken Palm, if you look at the Vegas numbers, 
KU did exactly what they were supposed to do against Oklahoma State, and really more because I think it was like a 10.5-point game, and KU was up by as much as 25. Yep. He's Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to be joined talk some more KU basketball with Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World coming up in 15 minutes. This is RCST on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, depending on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. That time on a Tuesday, joined now by Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, kusports.com. Ochag Baji had... A really important game for KU, not just because it was a really good game for him, but I think it was, I don't know, maybe uh, a little bit of a difference from what we've seen the last couple games. Not all his own fault. We heard Self after the last game saying he was beat up and clearly teams have been face guarding him and making him a priority um, and he was coming off the COVID stuff. Like, There's a lot of reasons you can explain it where it's not a big deal and nobody was was panicking or, or I think worrying too much about it. But do you think what we saw in terms of being able to get Ochai going and how they used him, was that a big progression in terms of how KU can thrive even when Ochai is being face guarded or made the priority by the defense or whatnot? Um, Kind of, I guess, the adjustment to how the Big 12 is adjusted. Was that what we saw last night? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, Self talked about that a little after the game and, and, He's really high on how Ochai's handled himself as these these Big Twelve teams have thrown this look at him. I mean, they're they're you know Texas, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State in consecutive games did pretty much everything they could think of to try to key on him and take him out of the game. And and while it did work in some ways in terms of Ochai not shooting it great and things like that, um, I think he got stronger in each one of those games and showed you know that that okay, well if that's what you're going to do. I'm going to help my teammates and I'm going to get them open and I'm going to stay out of the way and let them have more space to work. And, and when you're talking about a guy like Jalen Wilson, who may be driving it as well as anybody in the country right now, um, giving him more space, more, more, more room to get into the paint and get to the rim. I mean, that's not a bad thing. And, and, uh, and, and so I think the fact that Ochai is comfortable with that is a, no surprise at all. I mean, he's a team first guy. He's been that way his whole, whole career. Um, but B, it's also again showing his evolution and showing that that he understands like yeah sometimes I'm going to have to go to score 37 points, but other times I can score 11 and be just as effective. And and then last night was kind of the middle of that, right? He he went for 20, but nine of them came at the free throw line, and so he found ways to manufacture points there and only took 12 shots and and was still a, a guy that kind of keyed things for the rest of the lineup and and uh i you know self such a big fan of of uh crossing sports with his analogies and metaphors and things like that and and he usually does it with golf but he did it with the wide receiver thing last night i mean he said it's you know it's basically like ochai's a a number one type wide receiver who gets double coverage all game and he's okay with it because that means his teammates get open looks and, and single coverage and they take advantage of it elsewhere. And so, you know, it's, it's not football, but that's a pretty good way to put it. And, and I think that the fact that they see and, and feel that Ochai is comfortable doing that and, and getting more comfortable 
is obviously the best time because that can really frustrate some people and it can be totally foreign and, and it can be difficult. And uh, I think in the beginning it, it probably was for Ochai a, a week or so ago, but now that he's seen it a few times and they've also had time to work on it and he's thought about it and they've talked about it and all that stuff. Um, you know, he, he has a better handle on how to approach it now. And, and um, if teams continue to try to try to play Kansas that way, then I think he'll be, totally happy to just let let his teammates do what they can to, to win games for him and and he'll get his where he can we're talking with matt tate of lawrence journal world sports.com would you have believed me if uh, going into big 12 play i would have told you that in one game against oklahoma state ku would miss 19 straight shots and in the other game they would miss 16 of their last 17 shots and that both of them would be double digit wins right no that's insane. <laughs> it's absolutely insane. I mean, you know, the first one made a little bit of sense, barely, just because it was right, you know, before halftime, right? And so you still had time to to, uh, to to kind of get it back or whatever, even it out a little bit. And, and they were able to do that uh, at Oklahoma State. But last night, um, to finish the game, missing 16 of your last 17 shots is – I mean, you know, that that speaks to how well you played leading up to that point because it still was not even close. I mean, it was the, the, the outcome was never in jeopardy after that. It was never a concern. I mean, yeah, Self was not happy with how they closed it. And, and, and look, I think the, the thing to remember, too, about that, that stat or anomaly, if you will, is, is we're talking about Bill Self. And, and so he is probably at the top of the list of basketball people who do not determine success based on whether a shot goes in or not, right? So it's it, it, it's not like he's going to look at that and go, oh, that's awful. We were awful. He thought they were awful, but for other reasons. And and because they they allowed Oklahoma State to get easy bats, they didn't close out the game the way they should have, and they missed some free throws in there and all of that stuff. So, you know, not happy with, with the way they finished that game, but it was not simply because they missed shots. I mean – that's probably pretty far down on the list for him. Um, but, but yeah, it certainly speaks to the fact that, that they played an incredible basketball game up to that point to be able to – I mean, they didn't score for the last five minutes. They had 76 with five and change left, and, and they just decided that playing 35 minutes worth of offense was going to be enough to win, and, and it was easily. I mean, they, they – uh, yeah, they were they were really good last night, and it, it wasn't anything that you know they're going to put in the Smithsonian or one of those games where you're going to look back and say that was as well as they played all year. But but I think they uh, you know their defense was there, their offense was opportunistic and, and got hot at times, and and guys were pretty balanced in their scoring, and and uh, you know they they made free throws until the end, they competed on the glass. I mean, there were a lot of things to like about that win, and and uh, the not the least of which was the fact that it was not one that came down to the final possession. I think they really needed that mental break of, of the exhaustion that comes with going down to the wire every single game. And so I'm sure they enjoyed that. And they probably woke up a little fresher with a little more pep this morning. And, and now they'll kind of go through the easy or the rest of the week with a little bit of an easier mind and, and uh, then head to West Virginia and see what they can do out there. I, after the Oklahoma game, even as, as well as Zach Clements played and the comments after the game from Bill Self, I, I still was under the belief that, okay, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, that Clements will be the first big off the bench. And 
certainly enough, yesterday I was I was kind of surprised that it was Clements over Mitch Lightfoot. Now, it was only nine minutes for Zach Clements in the game, so it wasn't like an abundance of play or anything. But is it safe to say now that Zach Clements, the, those minutes and, and being the part of the rotation is a real thing? I, I think they want it to be. Yeah, I, I do. And, and, you know, what he's shown the last two games, there's no reason to think it can't be. Um, he brings different elements to the floor with him. And, and you know, it, it doesn't mean he's perfect. It doesn't mean those elements are things others can't bring. But uh, he's a pretty unique package. I mean, he's obviously a guy that can step out and shoot it and uh, has some length. And, and he had a couple of blocks last night. That shows his his defensive potential, even if he's not, you know, the strongest, most physical, you know, true kind of bang in there with big dudes and, and, and throw your muscle around type of guy, but, but he can be effective down there because of his length. And, uh, and then of course he's great energy and, and, uh, his energy is not that far off from what Remy Martin was praised for bringing earlier in the year, which is, you know, make a shot and throw your hands up and scream to the crowd and get everybody fired up with you. And, and I think there's a place for that, and that's an important part of, of any team. So I do think that that the idea is, is for uh, Zach to be in the rotation. I think he brings some athleticism that, that – that raises their ceiling a little bit. And that doesn't mean that Mitch shouldn't play. I mean, I think that it's, it's going to be probably pretty circumstantial and situational. And, and, you know, if, if, uh, if they need some of those things or someone to execute uh, by those things, I guess I should say, you know, some of that physicality that, that Mitch has a little better. And obviously he's a better shot blocker and all those things, but, but he's also, and he knows, you know, what self calls are inside and out and, and he can execute them. And, and so if they need a guy like that in a certain situation, then there's still a place for Mitch. But if they just need a guy who, who can come in and just fly around and, and play on instinct a lot, then I, I think there's, a, there's a place for, uh, for Zach for sure. And, and, you know, that was made obvious by Saturday after that. OU win when I, you know, I asked self what, what his message was to, to Zach when he put him in the game. And I mean, he said, you know, make easy plays and don't shoot unless you're wide open. And sometimes that's all you need to hear. I mean, like self even said, you know, Zach and, and KJ Adams aren't to the point right now where they know how to run things and execute, you know, plays and, and, you know, they're still freshmen. And so um, sometimes you can just dumb it down to that level of just, Hey, here's what you do. You just make the easy play and you shoot if you're open. And that's all I need you to do. And, and, you know, he did that very well. So I, I think that, you know, as you look down the road, as you look to the future of this team um, in this season anyway, I, I think it makes sense that Self and, and his staff are going to want to play those starters as many minutes as possible. But, you know, the idea of needing a bench or having to have a, a, a real – solid bench presence, I think is diminished some. I think it's, you know, you might need a guy like Clements for three, four minutes. You might need a guy like Lightfoot for four or five minutes. You might need a guy like Jalen Coleman-Lands for three possessions. Um, and in that, you might need to stay at them. Same sort of thing, right? I mean, they all have a little that they can bring to the floor. And so in that, you you have a bench that is actually pretty reliable and pretty pretty well equipped to, to deliver what you need provided those those frontline guys the starters can still 
you know, handle the workload that they're getting. I think they can. I think they want to. I think that's what self wants. I think if they can all play 34, 35 minutes, um, you know, then at, at that point, you don't need a whole lot from your bench, and you can kind of piece it together. Even even a guy like Bobby Pettiford, who's, you know, not, not made it all the way back because of that injury, well, he played one minute last night, and it was a surprisingly good minute. It wasn't anything special, but he made a he made a, a good decision, a good read. He handled the ball, and he got the ball to Dave for a bucket, you know, and checked out with one assist. Um, so, so even though that's not what you think of in terms of, like, the prototypical bench, I think this bench is pretty good, and I think they can be good so long as the starters can can hold up to what they've been doing, which is you know high minutes and production. And and if that dips, then then obviously they need someone else to step up a little bigger and a little more, and and then you start getting into some interesting questions of can that happen? But at least if this thing continues to go the way it's gone right now, I think they it's setting up to enter into the postseason in a pretty good place. Yeah, I, I I agree with everything you're saying, and and there are a lot of you know it's almost like chess pieces. They all have their different kind of kind of role and a uh, different situation that they fit into. And yeah, there are going to be certain games where one matchup is better than the other. I I do think though that with Clements, like while Jalen Coleman lands and and Mitch Lightfoot might be you know matchup dependent, or KJ Adams might be matchup dependent to a team like Texas Tech who switches a lot and has smaller five men, something like that. Zach Clements to me feels like a ceiling raiser for this team to where even though it is just could be five minutes a game, could be not in the rotation on a specific game, could be 10, 15 minutes on a specific game, or it could be, you know, playing down the stretch because you have a good matchup like the Oklahoma game where he basically is uh, what Tanner Groves is, a stretch five. And I the way that he plays both in terms of his ability to shoot the three so well and then it adds another dynamic to the offense. But also, I mean, this is a talented kid. He's a five-star recruit, right? Um, and if you go down the road and say, what does Zach Clements look like after his maybe junior season? Like, maybe he is a, a future first-round pick in a Bill Self offense. I don't know. I, I guess the point I'm going with this is that I, I feel like above maybe all those other bench pieces, and, and I, I think Remy Martin would probably classify into this whenever he does return, he's a ceiling raiser and that it doesn't necessarily change the outcome of your team. But if all goes right and you get the right version of this guy come March, there's a very real opportunity for a guy like Zach Clements to raise this team's ceiling and to change this from being a whatever elite eight team to a, a national championship contender or whatever it might be. I think you said it well. I mean, that that's what I think Zach brings for sure is, is especially athletically, um, they have a they have a chance to be a much different team when he's out there if he's cooking and if he's playing well and, and effective. Um, and then yeah, of course Remy's a part of that too. And and so um, I, I think that's what's so interesting about this team, right? I mean we're we're a couple of weeks away from March now, and there's still so much room as as good as they've been in in close games and and they you know they're 10 and 2 in the Big 12 and they're on top of the conference and and 21 wins already i mean as good as they've been there are still two three four very clear areas that you can point to and say they've got to get better here and i think the belief is that they can get better in those areas. And, and you know, will they get better to the point where those those kind of holes or flaws right now become strengths? 
I don't know if there's time for that to happen, but I do think they can tighten some areas up, and if they can fix those or elevate those or whatever you want to call it, uh, I mean, there's no reason to think that this team that's been pretty good so far and, you know, a top-10 team all year can't become a really good team entering the postseason, and, and, and that, that's kind of that ceiling that you're talking about. I mean, it, it, it's very rare, whether it's a Kansas team or other teams around the country, that, that you look at uh, teams that have played this well and, and, and racked up this kind of record through this point in the season. Usually those teams are doing that because they're sort of a finished product. They're sort of, you know, running on all cylinders, and, and they've, they've found their footing and hit their stride. And, and this team is different than that because I don't think that's the case at all, and yet they've still found a way to, 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 to be 21-4 and four and, and be where they are. So, um, of course, the ceiling's higher if, if, you know, if they can fix those, those one or two small things. I mean, if they can get consistent production from Dave McCormick every game, um, that's going to elevate their ceiling. If they can get that bench – whether that's just Zach and Remy or or what it is, what it is, you know, if they can get a little more production there instead of just that reliability and those situational guys like we talked about already, that would raise the ceiling. If they can obviously improve their defense across the board, almost that would raise their ceiling. And and those are all areas they're working on. They're all areas they're they're really emphasizing, and they're all areas that I think you can make a reasonable argument that can be improved. And, and so now we just sit back and wait and see if it actually happens. But it's not like you're asking them to, you know, do something that's, that's impossible or, you know, turn into uh, they've shot through 25 games. If they're a team that's shot 23% from three-point range, you're not sitting here saying, well, if only they could be a 38% three-point shooting team. You know, that, well, that wouldn't happen with that team, right? But, but that's not where we're at with this team. These are all reasonable expectation and expectations and reasonable um, hopes, I guess, if you will, or requests or whatever it is, demands maybe. I don't, I don't know what the word is, but they're all things that can be done. And, and so, uh, like I said, now we just have to see if they can do it and see if they do. And, and if they do, then, then I think you're looking at, yeah, you're looking at a, a typical Kansas uh, entering March Madness type of team, you know, a one seed potentially, um, certainly a one or a two is how it's looking right now. And, you know, a team that, that, that has a path to, to making a run. And I, I don't know if it's always felt that way this year with this team, but, but you look and you start breaking it down and goodness gracious, here we are. Right. And, and so I think that's kind of a cool reminder because I think a lot of places obviously would, would kill to have had the season that KU's had so far. And, and that probably can be said every year. But um, it, it, because we're so close to it, because it's our jobs to dissect it and live it and all that, because the fans are so passionate and, and want them to win every game, I think we lose sight of the fact that this is a pretty damn good team, man. And, and uh, the fact that they can get better only makes it more exciting for them and, and for their fans. He is Matt Tate of Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Matt, thank you so much for the time as always, man. Yes, sir. Have a good week. Thanks. All right, that is Matt Tate. Check out his work, KUSports.com, in the Lawrence Journal world. I'm Derek Johnson. With Adam Dravetta, you're listening to Rock Shock Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com. One hour down, two to go. Welcome back in to Rock Shock Sports Talk. Thank you for joining us today, either through the radio at FM 1017, 1320 on the AM dial, or 
KLWN.com. We're joined now by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. You know, we, we were talking a little yesterday um, before KU played Oklahoma State, and Jalen Wilson didn't have his best game or most efficient game. Still ended up with 11.7 rebounds. It was a solid game. But the way that Jalen Wilson is playing right now has been at another rate in conference play. I mean, like 14 points, 8 rebounds a game. He's shooting about 55% from the field in conference play. Obviously, right now, as, as you think about the all-Big 12 team, like Ochagbaji is probably a lock on the team. And I don't know if KU will get a second one on the team because there's a lot of other good options. But if you had to pick the next most deserving KU player, the next KU player that you think would have a chance to wind up on the first-team list, could you make the argument for Jalen Wilson? You could make that argument. I think that we found out last year uh, with David McCormick in particular that a lot of the people who vote on those teams do go ahead and take the whole season into account more than you know really looking at, okay, these guys were the best guys in conference play. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I feel like that's kind of a shift. You know, from from maybe where it was five years ago, ten years ago, and certainly further back. But you look at, at McCormick not getting first team All Big Twelve honors last year. Uh, the West Virginia Center did make it, and at the same time, you know, he was a guy that that Bob Huggins was. I, I don't want to say he publicly called him unplayable, but <laughs> but he was calling him out for for his struggles in Big Twelve play, and he still made it, and so. I think when you when you look at the year-long package, you're probably going to trend more toward Christian Brown. I, I think Jalen Wilson has a strong case, and I think you could certainly make the case, too, that you know when you project it, this team on it and say, hey, what's, what's going to be the factor or two that, that maybe decides whether this is a, a first-weekend team, a second-weekend team, or, or a Final Four team, I think you could maybe even make the argument that, that Jalen Wilson contains more value for for Kansas reaching its ceiling. At the same time, I, I do think that you know with the, what we saw from the voters last year, and maybe it was a, a one year thing or, or whatever. I do think that the strength of his year long resume probably gives Christian Brown a leg up in the actual voting. Yeah, how do you think it's going to work out with the voting? Because we were kind of talking about this and. It, it, it's interesting that, you know, you could almost convince yourself that if you just wanted to take five guards, you could. But I don't know how all the voters do it. If they put together an official team, are there requirements there? Do you have to put a center? Can it just be forwards? And and I think how we settled on it is that, you know, Bryson Williams plays a lot of five for Texas Tech, so he could kind of settle into that role. But I would also think if you do vote a traditional center on the list, like, it's weird because David McCormick could even come up in the conversation of who would be the other guy for KU that would have a chance to make it to the list. Not because he's been one of the three best players on KU, but because if you're taking a traditional center and taking Bryson Williams out of the mix, even though, again, he does play a lot of five, I don't know. It's either like David McCormick or Tanner Groves, I guess. Uh, it's it's interesting you ask that because I think every voter's process is, is different. And I think... If you ask some people, you know, and I've I've tried to ask these questions over the years too, you know, I think some people do legitimately just try and take the five best guys, whether that's five guards, whether it's 
five centers that year, whether they're all wings, whatever the case may be. But I do think that there are other people who try to put, you know, a, a potential lineup out there or, or somewhat, you know, they might not have a center, but maybe they have two forwards or, or something like that where it looks a little bit more like a team. And when you look at sort of that four spot, is such a nebulous position in the Big 12, right? Because guys bounce between the three and the four so much. You know, Timmy Allen, I think in Texas, is a guy that is intriguing at that spot. Isaiah Brockington plays a lot of four for Iowa State and was somebody that, that Bill Self had brought up to that exact same question about Jalen Wilson where he was like, well, you know, if you're looking at Jalen Wilson as a Big 12 candidate, you know, you can't just look at what he's doing. You have to ask what Brockington's doing, what these other guys are doing. And, and so I do think that there are going to be some people who maybe if Timmy Allen or maybe they don't quite like Brockington as much as, as some of the conference's top guards, they're still going to have a chance to get elected because there are going to be some people who aren't going to feel great about putting five guards on that team. And I, I think that that's what what makes that process kind of interesting. It's not like an all-NBA team where you have to have a center and you have to have you know two forwards and two guards. I, I do think that there are some people who legitimately look at it and say, I, I'm just going to put the top five players on there, and other people don't do that. Yeah, and I know, like, at the end of the day, these awards don't do anything for, oh, if you have two Big 12 players versus one, like, that's the difference in making a title or not. It It's not, but I, I just think it's interesting discussion, and you could almost argue that the team with the best candidacy to get two guys on the list, if you're not taking KU with the wins accounted for, like, could it end up being Kansas State? Because Nigel Pack seems like he's worked himself into lock position of the all-Big 12 team, and... When you look at Mark Smith's numbers, he's averaging like twelve and eight. It's just—it's a very fascinating year, I think, for the uh, All Big Twelve awards. Maybe more than than any that I can remember in the last handful of years. Sure, and the Texas Tech guys, and I'm not trying to rip on anybody. I actually mean this as a compliment. They're all kind of interchangeable, right? Like they're <laughs> all sort of between six six and six eight, and you know they're multi-positional defenders and. You know, all of them handle the ball because Texas Tech doesn't really play a point guard. And so uh, I do think that that's really interesting to look at it, you know, and say, okay, you know, who are the the teams that have the, the best chances to do this? You know, I, I think, you know, Baylor's injuries throw a little bit of, uh, of a wrench into this thing because of the, the games that certain guys have missed and the way Baylor has been a little bit up and down with its performances because of that. But, yeah, it's it's a fascinating discussion. I know Ken Palm right now has Ochai Abaji and Christian Brown one and two, you know, as the top two guys. And I think, you know, obviously if you were, those are, you know, advanced metrics. And the main thing that goes into that is basically who carries the biggest portion of the load for the most successful team. So basically – you know, who who is helping their team win the most or, or be the most efficient. And, and so it makes some sense if you, you know, if you believe Kansas is the best team that those guys would be right there. I also think that if you were to go around the Big 12 and, and ask coaches, okay, who's, who's on your Big 12 team? I don't think Christian Brown is going to come in second. I think that 
he's going to be sort of in that four, five, six, seven, maybe even eight range where you're right on that fringe of being either a first team guy or, or a second team guy. And as we've seen in the past, you know, those votes can really go either way. You know, sometimes those guys flip on it and sometimes for whatever reason, they just aren't the one that, that gets those votes. And so I think that, uh, that Brown's candidacy is going to be something to watch for sure. We're talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24 seven sports. As we look at the big 12 right now, Kansas currently in the lead. Then you got Baylor right behind with one loss uh, more. Uh, Texas tech has two more losses. Uh, is that where you would stop the, they're a big 12 title contender right now? Would it just be those three or would you give any credence to Texas possibly for, um, even though they have five losses, they have a lot of opportunities by getting Baylor, by getting Texas again and so forth. You know, I, I actually, I would cut it off at three and I know you asked me this exact question last week, Mm -hmm. albeit in a different way. You know, you asked me basically, what's the record that, that we can tie this thing off at with a bow? You know, what wins the Big 12? And I think that at this point with six games left for, for Kansas and and a lot of the other teams in the Big 12 as well since, since Kansas played earlier this week, I'm having a hard time seeing a scenario where Kansas drops four of those six and, and where other teams come back to the pack enough for, for Texas to tie for it. So, uh, you know, fourteen and four. I don't know if that gets it done. Fifteen and three might, but I do think thirteen and five. It, you could probably probably go ahead and throw that out as as a team that uh, a team that probably isn't going to to quite get there in terms of winning the league title this year. So you're still at being above fourteen and four right now. Um, does that? I'm guessing that means you think Baylor's going to win in Lubbock this Wednesday. You know, I, I actually think that uh, I think Texas Tech is going to protect its home court this weekend. Uh, I think, or on Wednesday, sorry. Texas Tech has been so, you know, just brutal at home. And a big, I mean that in a positive way. So much of that, I think, it has been that atmosphere. You know, obviously, you know, you guys are, are in Lawrence and, and you see Kansas uh, on a regular basis. And so you see what that atmosphere is. But I think maybe the most fearsome atmosphere in the Big 12 this year has been Texas Tech. And it's kind of funny, you know, the the Oklahoman used to run a, a poll on Big 12 media days during football. And this is back before they started asking everybody, you know, anonymously. And one of the things that they had asked, and this is probably mid-2000s, was, they asked, they said, okay, you know, what's the what's the toughest road atmosphere to play at in, in football? And the, the winning answer was Texas Tech. And one of the quotes that they had that was just a classic from one of the OU players was he said, I don't even know if they like their own players. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's that kind of a, a hostile environment. You know, there's a difference between a great environment and one that makes you scared a little bit. And I feel like Texas Tech kind of straddles that line a little bit. And with the success that they've had in basketball with with Baylor coming to uh, coming to town and the Big 12 race theoretically, you know, still on the board and everything, I, I think that's going to be a tremendous atmosphere. And I have a hard time believing that a Baylor team that may, you know, it's not going to be at full strength, obviously, because Jonathan, Jonathan Chamwachachua is done for the year. 
But if, if L.J. Cryer continues to go out and, and all of those things, you know, it's going to be awfully tough to see Baylor win in that atmosphere. Yeah, so at that point, if, if Baylor does lose, then for KU, 15-3 and three wins it outright. 14-4 and four gets, at the very least, a share of everything. Obviously, if you were power-ranking uh, the most losable games or the games that you think could give KU the biggest trouble the rest of the way in the regular season, I'm sure the game in Waco would be number one outside of that. You have the two games with TCU, the home game with Texas, home with Kansas State, and on the road this Saturday against West Virginia. Which of those outside of the game at Baylor stick out to you the most is, is uh, I guess, the game or two that you think would be most losable for KU? The one that's really sneaky to me because Kansas never loses senior day games is that Texas game. And the reason why is just it's you know your third game in, what, five days, six days, I think? With the TCU game being rescheduled yeah, for that week, third and five, and, and and so when you look at it from that perspective, you know I don't think you know Kansas was in position to win in Austin, and I think most of us would admit that they that we think that Kansas is a better team than Texas, but traveling to Fort Worth, then coming back and getting Texas Tech two days later, and then two days after the or. TCU two days later, so you play them twice in three days, and then two days after that you get Texas. Uh, you know there could be fatigue at play. I, I think that that's one of the the more interesting games there, just because if Kansas for whatever reason isn't tapping into that bench or, or doesn't get a chance to tap into that bench in those two TCU games prior, you know the Jayhawks could have a, a little bit of dead leg going on. You know, when, when Texas comes into town, and Texas is good enough that if Kansas doesn't play its A game, Texas can beat Kansas. And so it, it's tough to pick Kansas to lose at home. It's really, really, really tough to pick Kansas to lose at home on a senior night. And yet at the same time, because of the way the schedule works out, I, I think that there could be some added challenge there. Which team do you think would would uh, give KU more of a challenge or, or do you think uh, presents more of an upset opportunity this Saturday at West Virginia or the road game against TCU? You know, I, I think it's probably West Virginia. You know, you have the the Kansas State game and the Baylor game next week. And so, you know, it's when you're talking about 18 to 22-year-old kids or Jalen coleman Lands's case, you know, 18 to 35-year-old kids, you um, <laughs> Miss Lightfoot, 45, you know, just, just keep going up the scale. You know, it, it's easy to, to overlook somebody. And I think that while West Virginia hasn't accomplished what it wanted to accomplish, you know, they're, they're a Taz Sherman injury away from, from maybe having a, a pretty good scalp out there. And, and so, you know, Taz Sherman being back, I, I think that West Virginia is not playing at a super high level right now, but that just makes that game that much sneakier because of the way that the previous KU-K-State game played. You know that there's going to be some added juice for that one and then Baylor after that. And so I think it would be very easy for that West Virginia game to kind of fall into track game territory. He is Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work at 24-7 Sports. Kevin, before we let you go, one last thing with Adam. All right, Kevin, one last thing. What was the last device you pressed a button on? The last device I pressed a button on was my laptop, actually, yeah. because uh, because you guys uh, you were talking about the Big Twelve Player of the Year race, and 
and I'll admit I had uh, I had Kansas's page up on Ken Palm, but uh, <laughs> clicked on the little button to bring up the Big Twelve Conference and, and see where everybody stood in the Player of the Year race. So that would uh, the laptop would qualify. He's a well prepared man. Got the Ken Palm page ready to go. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. Thank you to Kevin Flaherty for joining the show. Kevin, appreciate it as always, man. All right, thanks a lot, guys. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty. Check out his work, 24-7 Sports. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Two hours down, one to go. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Five o'clock hour, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN with Adam Dravetta. I am Derek Johnson. Coming up later this hour, we'll let you listen in to what KU players had to say in the aftermath of their win last night against Oklahoma State. One of the players was not at the podium, but again, we saw play a, I don't want to say significant role, because it's hard to call nine minutes played a significant role, but played a role off the bench was Zach Clements. He ended up being the first big off the bench. We both, I think, thought, I, I can't remember for sure on you. I know for sure on me, I thought that Mitch Lightfoot would be the first big off the bench. Yeah, I, I mean, was there. Uh, we've seen the rodeo enough where a player plays well, and then there's the talk about is he going to play more, and he just doesn't, right? Yep. But he did. Yeah, and I think what you're seeing, I, I don't know, what are you seeing more of? Are you seeing Zach Clements has earned the trust of Bill Self, or are you seeing Bill Self pulling back a little bit and being more willing to experiment with guys who haven't, shown what he has yet wanted them to show in practice that's a really good question um I know he mentioned in the post game that you know he had only practiced I think three times coming into the, the last game against Oklahoma and talking about Zach Clements here so you would kind of think that it's it's the latter there but it, it's weird because he you also, would think if this is a play about playing for the higher ceiling I guess what what changed between the past and now, I know Zach Clements was injured, so you, you didn't have the luxury of playing him in games past. But what changed to maybe what we saw in December, for mm -hmm. instance? Yeah, I would think something. He's probably improved to some point in practice, but I, I'll also add this. I mean, self said, and look, this doesn't mean that they're just rolling out the ball and he's saying go, but he did say after the Iowa State game. Now, maybe that was unique to the Iowa State game because uh, Ochai Abaji wasn't available. I'm talking about the game in Ames. Um, Post game of that game, I don't know if it was with Gurley or in the press conference, but he said he kind of got to a point in that game where he just let go and it was fewer direct plays and more just, you know, kind of vague, not vague, but looser sets and just kind of letting the team go. Um, and he thought that was the best formula for that particular night with that particular team. So I, I, I don't know. I just, I wonder if, if Clements. Um, I'm sure he's shown something over the course of the year that makes self view him as a, a guy that, whether it be for matchup purposes or just for pure talent purposes, he views him as a guy worth playing or else he wouldn't be playing in the middle of February. Um, but I also, I, I just, I do wonder if there's something about self kind of 
rolling back his his previous um, rules or previous expectations of what a player needs to show in practice. He definitely could. Um, I mean, this this is a move that changes the ceiling for KU if he is a firm part of the rotation. Now, it's not going to overwhelmingly, drastically change things because he's still a, a backup center playing, you know, basically, I guess, like 8 to 12 minutes on a given night. But it does change your ceiling a lot because he is one of your higher ceiling players. And he does give you a different element that you don't have with the other five men that you have. Like with KJ Adams, he's more of a switchable defender. With David McCormick, Mitch Lightfoot, they're going to do similar things. Now, they, they get there different ways, and I think Dave is better at doing them. But maybe Mitch is a little bit better of a shot blocker. But nonetheless, Zach is different than those guys. And, and that's what's interesting here, that maybe you're finally getting to a point where you know, this is going to be a ceiling play, and let's see what we can do. And maybe it just took that one Oklahoma game to kind of unlock, because even if you do have a higher ceiling, Bill Self's still going to play the guy he trusts more. Yeah. And he needed that Oklahoma game, I think, to maybe get the Bill Self trust. I'll say this. This is the same coach who put Cole Aldrich, his first meaningful minutes was in a Final Four game but do you against think, Tyler Hansberg. I, I don't think Cole Aldridge wasn't playing because Bill Self didn't trust him. I think Cole Aldridge wasn't playing because... You had so many good big men on that team. I think it was part, I agree, but I'm just saying, like, yes, you are right. I I don't know that he didn't trust Aldrich, but I don't think he did trust him because Aldrich hadn't given him, it was it was kind of the old chicken or egg. Like, he, had, he didn't trust him, but that was because Cole Aldrich didn't have many opportunities that year to show he was trustworthy because of the dudes in front of him. And so I guess my, my point is, yes, self's pattern is absolutely... I'm gonna play the guy I trust. That is absolutely his pattern. But he's all I just brought that up just as as an example to show he's also not adverse to playing for matchups either. No, he's not. But I think that's the importance of what we saw last night. Mitch Lightfoot only played the last thirty-four seconds of the first half because that's what we wondered going into the game. We said, you know, is the Oklahoma game just what you said? A matchup thing where they happen to have a stretch five. Let's use our stretch five, right? Um Oklahoma State does not have a stretch five. No. It's I, the I, opposite. They have a shot blocker. So the fact that he basically, again, didn't play an overwhelming amount of minutes, but buried Mitch Lightfoot in terms of Mitch Lightfoot only played three minutes and only 34 seconds in the first half. The rest of the time was in garbage time at the end. That signals a significant change in the rotation. To me. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's safe to say he's probably successfully. And, and look, I don't, I am a big Mitch Lightfoot fan. I love what he brings to the team. I love how much he loves KU, but I think if you're if you've looked at Mitch Lightfoot and your goal, and I, maybe I'm wrong, maybe this wasn't Self's goal, but if your goal was to have a guy like Mitch Lightfoot, but ultimately recruit over the top of him, then mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's I think that's who Zach Clements is the the example of a guy of of recruiting over a player who's fine. Yeah. I who will you. do everything, who's very, very smart and will do everything you ask of mm-hmm. him, but physically just cannot do what other players can do. Well, that's the thing. Mitch Lightfoot was recruited at a time right when things were changing from KU playing two bigs and he was coming in as a power forward, and that was going to be the idea. He would be a power forward next to a big man, right? And that's kind of when things started to change. All of a sudden, KU is going to play a a wing at the four, and that was the popular trend becoming in college basketball. He was brought in as a four-man, and not to his own doing, but by lack of big man depth certain years, injuries at other positions, just the change of the game, 
Mitch Lightfoot kind of had to transition to a five, and he's done an admirable job of it. Like you said, he's given you so much. He's given you so much hustle and effort. At the same point in time, I I almost feel like if you candidly were behind closed doors and asked Bill Self or the coaching staff or whoever at some point over the season, even when Mitch Lightfoot was the backup big or even when he started over David McCormick that game in January, if you asked them, ideally, would you like to see one of your freshman bigs, Zach Clements or KJ Adams, usurp Mitch Lightfoot? Yeah. I bet you they would say and, yes. And and usurp like him. Earn not, not, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not, not, oh, Mitch Lightfoot just can't do it mm-hmm. or he's, you know, taking a step back. But actually, they, they play their way in front of him. I just, I, I think you are a better, I think you, you're, I'm trying to think of another example. I just, I, I don't, there are just certain times where you look at certain players and you're like, the fact that he's the first guy or at least the first guy of his position off the bench isn't a good sign for your team. And Mitch Lightfoot, and, and it's frustrating, it's, it's, it's difficult to say because everything against Mitch Lightfoot is things he can't control. He can't control that he's not an athletic freak. Um, I think you've gotten everything out of Mitch Lightfoot that you possibly can, but I think the ideal scenario is you bring in a guy who has athleticism combined with basketball capacity, um, and he just outplays Mitch Lightfoot, and I Mm -hmm. think that's what you're seeing happening. Yeah. And I I think that's good. That's a good thing. Yes, exactly. I mean, he's a five-star recruit. Um, I don't know where he lined up. He's probably below where, like, David McCormick was, but... I also think that Zach Clements probably has, maybe it's just the the way the game's going or the potential of the three-point shot. Zach Clements probably has the best pro potential of your center room. Um, so from that standpoint, if you want to look at it, the ceiling's the highest. Now, in terms of functional ceiling, what you're going to get out of him this year, mm-hmm. it's not as high as Dave, obviously. But the point is, like he, he very much does change your talent base. He very much does change how you can play. He changes different matchups you can go against, like, that makes you more matchup prone against maybe some mid-major school that you're going to play in the first or second round who is going to be playing a stretch five at different points. It, I think it is just so important. In the last year. Yeah, you didn't Eastern need... Washington. Yeah, you did not need all of your bench pieces or all of your young freshmen or new players to contribute or to hit. But you needed some of them to come around. And, and through different points of this season, that hasn't been the case. Once Remy Martin went down and Ochai went down, Joe Yesifu finally started to get into things. Now we're starting to see that with Zach Clements. There are tangible reasons why this team is a lot different, even from just two and a half weeks ago against Kentucky. And also changes things in that right now, Jalen Wilson no longer is the emergency five. Mm -hmm. Jalen Wilson is fighting for minutes with Christian Brown. He was fighting, you know, and and then, I mean, you've got your, Zach Clements has forced his way into the lineup. Nobody has forced their way out. And that's important. Um, because now you're 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 garnering competition elsewhere. That means that in practice you're you're putting guys up against other true starting or at least first guy off the bench caliber players. Like right now, anybody going up against Zach Clements is playing against a legitimate Big Twelve basketball player. Yes, one hundred percent. That matters. Does it change at all if I were to tell you that? You know, this is going to continue to improve for Zach Clements, that we're only going to see him get better and better each game or over the course of the weeks. And I'm not saying, like, he's going to be, you know. He's not going to turn into an all-big 12 Exactly, right away. But that he's going to continue to carve out this role, that there's not going to be these setbacks, that it's just going to be a smooth path moving forward. Does it change at all 
the way you look at this team in March, or is it just about the same? It's just a nice little cherry on top. I think the the biggest thing it does to me is is you have you're no longer scared if there's a matchup issue. You're no longer scared if you go, well, holy crap, David can't do anything against him defensively. Um, I think that is where that matters. So yes, I I think it raises KU ceiling, not you know an extreme amount, but um. I think yeah, I think there's something to be said about you. You you don't have to spend a week going. There's literally nobody we can trust to put on him, and we just have to hope for the best. Yeah, and I I look at it too like it it can make this offense as crazy as it is to say because they're already a top five, top three offense in the country. It can make them even more dangerous because you're talking about when he's on the floor. Now, all of a sudden, you're pulling their center either away from the rim or they're playing drop coverage and he's shooting an open three. But if you pull their center away from the rim, oh, guess what? Christian Brown and Jalen Wilson are great at driving the basketball and getting into the teeth of the defense. And uh, it's not, you know, the biggest news in the world that Zach Clements is part of the rotation, but it is a pretty big nugget that's happening for KU basketball. And we'll see if he continues to play well this Saturday against West Virginia. With Adam Dravet, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, and the KLWN app. Depend on it.